Welcome to the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway podcast, where you will hear transformational stories, positive encouragement, and practical strategies to help you grow your mindset, reach your potential, live your dreams, and experience a purpose-driven, impact-filled life. Here's your host, Alan Blaine. Okay, this is Alan Blaine, and I am fired up to interview our special guest today, Mr. Dave Sanderson. Dave Sanderson is an entrepreneur. He's a best-selling author, philanthropist, and survivor of Miracle on the Hudson. We'll talk more about that here in a little bit. But for more than four decades, he has been a top producer for some of the largest sales teams in the world. A quarter million people have enjoyed his business and personal leadership events, warmth, humor, and inspirational messages. On January 15th, 2009, the very important date, Dave was one of the last passengers off the plane that crashed into the Hudson River, best known as the Miracle on Hudson, if you're old enough to remember that, considered the most successful ditching in aviation history. He is an author and contributing author of three internationally best-selling books. Dave founded his executive personal leadership firm, Dave Sanderson Speaks International, in January of 2014 five years after the plane crash. As a sought-after international speaker, he works with established and emerging leaders and entrepreneurs to help them find opportunities of uncertainty, aligning with their passion and purpose by employing their leadership skills and igniting their performance by pivoting turmoil into opportunity. I love that. And challenges into success, which is what we're all about here on the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway podcast, which is why I'm so excited for this interview. So in addition to his 37 years in sales and sales leadership, he was the director of security for Tony Robbins for over 10 years and was recently named one of the top 100 leadership speakers in Inc.com. Dave resides in Charlotte, North Carolina with his wife of 36 years, Terry, and their four children, Chelsea, Colleen, Courtney, and Chance, the four C's. So Dave, welcome to the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway podcast. Are you ready for this? Alan, thank you for having me. Yeah, those, yeah the four C's. I didn't get a vote in those names, by the way. I, just, I didn't get any vote in those names. I love it. I love it, though. That's great. Yeah, I don't know if that makes it easier to remember kids' names or harder. I mean, I always get my children's names mixed up. I don't know either, but my wife named them. So, you know, it is what it is, man, right? Yes. Those are some great names, though. So, hey, I've shared with our audience, Dave, just a brief overview intro. But could you share a little more of your background, maybe even just, you know, the Cliff Notes version of kind of your life story leading up to where you are today? Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in Ohio. Dad got transferred when I was in uh, junior high school, uh, when they had junior high schools back in the uh, early 70s to Virginia. and then. Uh, graduate high school there. Went to James Madison University. Love my time there. But uh, uh, my dad told me when I graduated, I had to get a job. I had 30 days to get out of the house. He meant it. One of the things I love my dad for, he's a man of his word. In 30 days, I did not have a job. So he helped me get my first job to get me out of the house. And that first job was at a place called Howard Johnson Hotels and Restaurants. The third stop was Charlotte, North Carolina. And that's where I found my uh, future wife. She actually uh, was transferred there likewise. Uh, to Charlotte. So we met here, been married now for 36 years. You know, as I started transferring through Howard Johnson, came back because my wife told me she wasn't going to marry me if I kept heading north. So I uh, came back and that's where I got into sales. The door-to-door sales back when you had to knock on doors and handle rejection, which I think was a great lesson for me. I bet. 
And so, you know, I've had sales and I went to technology sales and that's what I've been doing for the last about 35 of those 37 years is primarily in technology sales. And I recently just retired from Oracle last week from the corporate world. I'm still doing what I do, but I retired from the corporate world. And as you, I, you mentioned, I was also the head of security for Tony Robbins as I was doing this for over 10 years. And then uh, the miracle of the Hudson happens and it changes the direction of my life. And there's a lot of things that have transpired, which I'm sure we'll talk about for a few minutes. But uh, that's when uh, basically Tony told me uh, it's time to you know, get out of the nest and go and do your own thing. It was a very big encouragement for me to become an entrepreneur and do what I was doing. And I was still trying to work at the same time. And that's why uh, you know, we decided to go ahead and retire here and uh, be able to help people around the world and uh, full, put full time. I love it. So just a couple of follow-up questions. I'm curious. I, I agree with you, by the way, when you said your door-to-door sales experience going way back. I mean, you're going back a few decades, I, I assume, when you're, you're starting out in your career. In the 80s, okay. And you said it was great training grounds, I think, for handling the fear of rejection. Have you thought much about that, like that whole fear of rejection? Like, what would you say to somebody who is just feels like they're kind of crippled in a certain area of life because of fear of rejection? What do you say to that? You know, life is about rejection. Even, even if you believe in a greater being, what I call Jesus Christ, he was rejected. So you got to learn, you know, life is about rejection and how you got to handle it and how you have to reframe rejection. And that's what I learned going door to door. And I was very blessed to have a mentor, my name of Bill, that encouraged me to invest in myself, which I did. And, uh, you know, it's the first, first one I went to was Tom Hopkins and then Jim Rohn and then Tony Robbins. So I was around people that you could teach me lessons around how to handle rejection and have a more of a different mindset on how to change the meaning of what rejection really means. Yeah, I love it. And were you working for Tony in security, Tony Robbins, when 2009 happened and the plane crash that you were on? Most definitely. I was actually in security at that time. And that night, I mean, after the plane crash, I was in the hospital and you know, I didn't have my phone. I lost everything in Hudson River, everything down to my watch. In fact, this is the watch I was wearing. I just got it back. It was fixed. And he was the only one who called me in the hospital that night. And uh, he, uh, like I said, people, Tony has a lot of resources. If he wants to find you, he will. Unfortunately for me, he did. And that's, uh, he did a very nice, you know, had a very nice conversation. Then, then he did a YouTube about that conversation and uh, share some insights that a lot of people he never heard of. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was quite an experience. Well, let's go back to that. Let's, let's not delay. I'm excited for our listeners to get to hear that may or may not be familiar with the incident. I think probably the majority of people are, I would guess. That was a big deal. It was all over the news in 2009. A movie was made as a result of it. And you were one of those hundred and how many passengers on that plane? 150 passengers were on the plane. That's right. 150. And correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but you were the last passenger off that plane. Is that correct? Correct. Captain was the last person off the plane. I was the last passenger off the plane. Okay. So take us through that Cliff Notes version of that. Tell us about that day, that incident, and why that was such a monumental deal for you and even what you're doing today. Well, thank you. I think, you know, one of the big things that people don't know is I wasn't supposed to be on that plane. I was scheduled on the five o'clock flight and I got done early with work at that 10 o'clock that morning because we started our day at five o'clock in a distribution center, which was open pretty much all night. So we got done early. I was like trying to get home. So I got an earlier flight. So that was number one. What's supposed to be on there? Gave up a first class seat for C-15A, four rows by the left wing. And nothing extraordinary about to take off. As we know, it's about a minute into it, everything starts happening. And you know, at that point in time, you really didn't think it was serious because you know you lost a couple engines. 
He's turned the plane around, going back to LaGuardia, no big deal, right? But then all of a sudden you see a bridge going up and you head straight for the bridge, like, okay, something's going on. And then you find out uh, in that moment, this is approximately three and a half minutes after the plane got struck. He says his famous words, this is your captain, brace for impact. That's when you know it's serious. People use the word dire, I don't know. All I know is something's gonna happen pretty quick and you better have everything your ducks in a row and get your mind right pretty quickly because if you survive, the crash, which was a long shot. Then you have a second issue. You got a plane sinking rapidly in the water, and the water was 36 degrees. Oh, wow. So as we know the story now, you got the plane down in one piece. Yeah, the back of the plane broke off, and that's why water came in immediately. Uh, so the, what, the water was up where I was sitting. It was about ankle to knee deep immediately. And then, uh, you know, now it's about getting out of the sinking plane. And no one lost their heads. I used, The term I used that night, Alan, on with Katie Couric on CBS was it was controlled chaos. So yeah, things were moving quickly, but no one was losing their heads. And then my game plan was, and one of the things I tell people, one of the things I learned early, especially through sports, is you better have a game plan, right? And right. so the game plan I had was as we were going down is aisle up out. And that's what I kept saying in my head, aisle up out, aisle up out, because if something, if I did survive, now I gotta get out. So I just kept the game with the aisle, get up and get out. So I did that. I mean, it was, I, it was my time at the aisle. It was time for me to go. And that's when everything changed. Everything shifted for me because, you know, I could have gotten out. And that was my game plan. But when I hit the door and I was ready to get out, I heard my mom start talking to me. And my mom passed away in 1997. But there was something was, she said when I was a child, it just came to me at that moment. It was, if you do the right thing, God will take care of you. And, you know, I grew up in a small town outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, where everybody took care of everybody. Everybody knew everybody. So instead of going out, I went towards the back of the plane to see if anybody needed help. I climbed over the seats to get towards the back of the plane, and things were moving pretty quickly in the back. In the back of the plane, was a, no one ever sees the angle. They usually see the angle from the front. They don't see the angle from the side where the back of the plane is already submerged. So the plane was about this, this about chest leap deep of water, and you're trying to make your way out. And then I saw, the first light that I saw was on the right side. I'm like, okay, I'm out. Time to go. And then you look out and there's no room on the wing of the boat. And that's why I was last, how I became the last passenger off the plane because there was no room to get out of the plane. So I was in the plane waist deep in 36 degree waters for about seven minutes, holding on to the lifeboat because the lifeboat was floating out to the river and they kept screaming to hold on because I had leverage to hold on. So I was holding on until it came about, uh, about seven minutes later. I was like, okay, this plane's going down. I got to get out. And that's why I swam. Jumped in and swam to the closest boat that I could find. It was about the end of that wing. I tell people I was, was the longest 15 yards from my life because wow. I wasn't fully clothed. The water was 36 degrees and there was jet fuel in the water. And that's why you see me wearing glasses because I got jet fuel in my eyes. Uh, and they found out later because I was having a little trouble seeing. But that's how I got off the plane. And uh, there's a lot more to that story. That's the Cliff Nose version of what really uh, transpired and set me on a different direction for my life. Wow. So was it LaGuardia that it had taken off from? That's correct. I'm trying to remember the story. You lost an engine or two. Both engines were hit with birds, Canadian geese at the same time. And that's when they turned around and were heading back for an emergency landing, but couldn't make it back. He started banking, right, to go back. Yep. And as he started banking, of course, he was losing altitude, right? Yep. Because he has no, no power. So he had to glide it up and down and try to get it back and then he made the call, right? He, he made the right call. If you saw the movie Sully, which I was very honored to have a little part in, there was no way he could have gotten back safely. 
Long shot. A long shot. Right? I mean, even yeah. if he got close, he would have been rushed straight into the Hudson Bay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, very fortunate for us. We had a captain who uh, used his skill sets and his mindset in a time where it could have been tragic. Wow. And then ironically, I mean, you're in seat 15A. It happens, and you were sharing this with me the other day when we were talking. I found this so interesting. You were in seat 15A. This happened on January 15. And what were the other 15s? There was a couple others. I know you've got a book or something coming out on this January 15th, but That's right. was there another 15 involved? Flight 1549. Right. Flight 1549. Yep. So was 15A an exit row seat? No. It was four rows behind the left exit. Okay. So no, it wasn't an exit row. I, you know, it was just crunching like everybody, right? Tied in there. So, uh, no. Wow. I mean, you went to the back. I'm, I'm assuming, I think I'm reading between the lines here, but you went to the back of the plane to put others ahead of yourself in that moment in time. Yeah, just to check to see if yeah. anybody needed help, right? I knew that I was okay, right? Right. Yeah. You don't know if anybody else is okay. So that's why I made the call just to climb over the seats. And everybody was okay. I mean, people were moving, right? You're like, control chaos. People were moving, but no one was out of sorts, like pushing each other. It didn't happen. It was, everybody wow. was really orderly. And was, that's amazing when all stuff's breaking loose. You know? That is amazing. And, and a testament to the passengers and also, I'm sure, the crew, too, and what they were communicating. How deep was that water the plane was sitting in, that 36-degree water? The water's about 46 feet deep from where we were at in the river. Do we know what kept that plane from just completely submersing right away? Basically, he locked some of the doors underneath so the water wouldn't come in total. It came in from the back. So basically, it was uh, understanding and going by the book, right, where he locked down some of the doors and to make sure that uh, if he had a chance, if he have a chance. Because the other issue that people don't think about, which I did, was once the time I saw a plane crashes, there's always fire. Right. And a fire in a plane. Not a good thing. You're done. So fortunately, he did the right things, give us the best opportunity to survive, and that's what happened. Wow. So, wow, would you say that was the biggest challenge to date that you've been through, or does that even pale in comparison to other challenges in life that you face now? That's a great question. I would say that's, that was a huge challenge in my life, but I think the biggest challenge happened after when I went back into the Hudson River to swim with the Navy SEALs. And the reason I say that is, number one, I had swam for 40 years, and I was going to go back to a place that almost took my life. And I, I tell people, I said, you know, one of the things I try to teach my kids and teach other people is you got to face your fears. And I didn't fear the Hudson River, but, you know, when you go back to a place and you look there and you're like, you look down like about a mile away is where this whole thing happened. And then all of a sudden you jump in the water to start swimming and you taste it, you feel it, you smell it, right? All of those sensations come back, right? So I think that was the biggest challenge. And tell me about that. Well, you went back in the water to swim with Navy SEALs, you said? Yeah, there's a Navy SEAL swim every August to support those uh, folks who are transitioning out of the, uh, the military, primarily Navy SEALs, correct? Elite of the elite, yeah. And you did that swim with them. How far after the accident was that? The first time I swam, it was two years ago. So it was uh, yeah, about 12, 13 years after. And yeah, I mean, I guess I had swam for 40 years. I had to relearn how to swim, 3.1 mile swim. in some of the toughest currents in, in the country. Uh, people understand how rough that water is. Plus, the water's pretty nasty. I don't care what anybody says. It's pretty nasty water. That's it was a huge challenge. But, you know, being with the elite, they raise your standard, right? 
You have to raise your standard, which is another great metaphor, but another great lesson. In life, you want to get something done, you got to raise your standard. I can't wait to get into some of the lessons learned, and we will just real soon. But tell me about this 3.1 mile swim. I mean, a Ironman triathlon is a 2.4 mile swim. Of course, there's, it's one of three events, but it's a 2.4 mile swim. You're saying you swam 3.1 miles. That's a substantial swim. How in the world did you train for that? How long did you train for that? That's one part of my new book I'm talking about. Yeah, I followed my strategy I always followed in life and in business. First, I, I had to go through my, my strategy. I've, I've had this for 20 some years. You got to know your mission, right? And my mission initially was to go back to the river and swim it, but really came to raise money for our Navy SEAL vets. Second, though, was the, it, was, it was the key. The second step was the key, Alan, is I had to find what I call my who's for my house. And what that is means is this. I needed somebody to reteach me how to swim. I needed someone to teach me how to swim in open water. I needed to have somebody with me who I could rely on, call what I call a wingman, right? So I found the right people. People said, what do you spend your time on? I spent a lot of time on finding the right people to help me be able to achieve the outcomes. Finding your who's from your how, that was huge, right? Number three is you gotta take massive action. Every morning I was up at 3.50, even today I'm swimming, because I'm swimming with special operations in two weeks. I'm still up at 3.50 a.m. swimming. So I had to get up every morning to swim, to retrain for 100 days, I did this straight, right? Fourth thing you talk about is called focused execution, the game plan. You got to have a game plan. And we set up a game plan on how I was gonna swim from New Jersey to the Statue of Liberty to Ellis Island to New York City, and do push-ups in the middle at each stop and run to the 9-11 Memorial. So that's number four. And number five, I think was the one that really came out of the Hudson River is you got to have gratitude. You got to have gratitude. Because one of my, my core beliefs, Alan, is grace is fueled by gratitude. The more gratitude you give, the more grace that you get. I, I believe the more grace that you get, the better opportunity you have to be able to serve your mission. That's the five-step plan. I developed that years ago. I just followed the game plan, right? Just did that plan to get it done. I love it. What would you say is one of the greatest keys to your success and does it relate back to that accident at all as you look back on your life today i mean now you're authoring three books you you're speaking all around the country maybe even beyond for that matter and for our listeners small world i mean we we never met back then but you spoke actually at a men's event at our church five or so years ago is where I first got to really hear your story and hear you speak. And so, I, you know, I know you, you're speaking all over the place and accomplishing great things. I know you have your own magazine, just a lot of stuff going on, a lot of success. But that, that's what I want to ask, as I love to ask all our guests, you know, what is one or more of the keys, would you say, to your success? Well, I think one of the keys actually happened that day on the Hudson when I got to the boat and I was trying to figure out how I was going to get on the boat, right, after swimming and going through all this. And I heard my mom say something again, because when I yelled up, I can't, I can't climb. Remember my mom, my mom, the word she hated most in life was the word can't. So from, I really realized my mom's worldview after she passed away was if you can't, you must. So I've always had the mindset, and if, if, I, if I want something bad enough, if I have a mission big enough, I can't figure out how to do, because there's no such word as can't. I leave that with everybody, because I think that's, you know, I mean, it's pretty basic. But you know what? It's core. I mean, so many people say I can't all the time, and we don't say that ever in my house. It's like when I grew up, my mother would not let us say that word. So I never grew up with it. So when I hear it, I'm like, uh, you're going down the wrong path, dude. 
Yeah. Now, if that's in your head, if you can't, then you're already thinking about ways you can't do it. 100%. So I think that's that's probably one thing I would probably leave with somebody. If that was one of the last things I had to leave with anybody, is that right there. So good, Dave. That's so good. I mean, we say to our children all the time, you know, less now that they're getting older and they've, they've heard it plenty of times, but it's nothing new, but it goes right along with what your mother was saying. We say, you know, there are those that think they can't and there are those that think they can and they're both right. It's, it's what the mind can conceive and believe it can achieve. And there's so much power in the mind. And I, I didn't understand that in my early years. And I wish somebody could have shared that with me early on. Sounds like you had a, a wise mother sharing that advice with you from an early age. So you would say then the biggest challenge that you faced to this date was that swim with the seals even greater than the challenge of the accident itself that day? Yeah, I, and the reason I say that is because there's so many things that had to encompass that and such a short window to do it in. Hmm. And, you know, the plane crash happened in seven minutes. I mean, everything happens six, seven minutes, plane crash, and then you're another 20 minutes until you're somewhat a uh, place where you're semi-stabilized. That was three hours and plus 100 days of training. Mean, so, and plus it was a mindset. I mean, there's a lot of challenges that go into that. I mean, one of the questions and you know, I, you know, I was thinking about in this is people ask me, is there any like negative self-talk when life hits you? Well, yeah, there was this negative self-talk when I was in the river. That's exactly when it happened. We had to jump off a 13-foot bridge. That's what these seals do. They go crazy, right? They jump off this bridge and they start swimming. That wasn't in my game plan, right? But my wingman, Suzanne, jumped first. I did a second. And me, I, I don't know if you know this, but when you jump down, you go down as far as you jump, right? So if you go 13 feet, you go about 13 feet down and bob back up, right? I did not know that. I didn't know that either until they said, yes, where, how far you go down as far, you know, it's basically up, down, jump. How far are you going to go? Roughly, right? Maybe unless you're doing something to slow yourself down. Because I mean, if you I jump off a... A 60-foot cliff, like I know people that do, they must have a way to stop them from going 60 feet down with their arms or whatever. But I, that's interesting that you naturally would. That makes sense. I found out, they, I was told if I would bunch myself up like this instead of go down like straight, yeah, you basically don't go down as far because you're dispersing the water. I mean, there's a whole, whole science behind it. But right. what happened was is she and I got separated immediately. So the first leg, which is 1.1 miles roughly, the Statue of Liberty, I'm not with her. Not, now all this negative self-talk, right? It's coming in my head. It's like, can I really do this, man? The waves are coming over. I'm by myself in the middle of the river, right? And I'm trained, but I trained to have somebody with me to talk me through it, right? right. So I, I did have some negative self-talk, but then he had to sort of turn it on his head, right? And say, you know, I've made a commitment. I must do it, right? Went back and made it a must. So fortunately, I caught up to her at the first stop at Statue of Liberty. And we had made the promise at that point, Alan, we do not get ever get separated again. So we changed strategy immediately. 180 degree different strategy to make sure we always stayed together, which helped me. It was a saving grace for me that day. That is awesome. So I think what I'm hearing you say, and I'm going to throw this back to you as a question, to deal with the negative self-talk that you had, which we all can have at different points in time, depending on how much we're pushing ourselves. I mean, yes. I mean, if someone's not going to push themselves and and stay in their comfort zone indefinitely, they're probably still going to have to deal with this, but even more so if we really stretch ourselves. But commitment was the key. I would take one step up. I would say resolve. And there's a difference, resolve. right? You can commit all day to do something, and you'll probably do it. But if you resolve, it's done. It's going to happen to heck or high water, right? It's going to happen. Yeah. So I was, I was resolved to get it done because 
I'll, I'll take you back to this, the second day I was in training. I was still in my little shorts. I didn't have any goggles. And my SEAL sponsor, I'll tell you that this is the backstory to the backstory, Alan. I was in the pool. I could barely swim 25 yards, right? And he looked me in the eye and said, I'm not going to take you out of this, but you will take yourself out of this. And he walked away. This guy's a Navy SEAL, right? And so that's the moment I became resolved. This is it. It's done. I don't care if I die in that water. It's going to happen, right? Because no one ever tells me no, right? I mean, it's up to me as I say, if I can't do it. I never heard that word before. So I was like, that was the moment. I said, you know what? I'm all in. I'm all in. Whatever's going to happen, we get it done. I love it. Was there ever a time when you maybe had this aha moment or you, you learned something or realized something of value that will better equip you and did better equip you for future adversity, future challenges, future hard that you were going to go through and undoubtedly have since whatever point that might have been? Yeah, there's been a lot of aha moments. But I think the one that I'll point to happened on the plane, and I, I think I already referenced this, when I got to the door and I heard my mom say, if, you know, if you do the right thing, God will take care of you. And I think that was a reinforcement for me. I said, you know what? Because I think one of the challenges a lot of people have right now, and I'm not stereotyping anybody, I think one of the challenges this country's having is they need to be right instead of doing the right thing. Yeah. They're so determined to be right. Like even the political scenes, you have to be right. I can't even have a conversation with some people now, right? So I think sometimes doing the right thing is not serving you the right way, but it's serving them greater good the right way. So I think that's the mindset I think I really came out of that, that situation was like, you know what? I want to focus on doing the right thing. And yeah, it may cost me money. It may cost me time. It may cost me relationships, which it has. Yeah. Right. But you know what? I know in my heart, I live that to my values and I've done the right thing. I think that was the aha moment. I love it. When you look back now on different challenges, and I know you've had others, how do you view your past challenges in the context of now your current success and level of all even say notoriety, but how do you view all those past challenges in, in light of all that? Well, that's why I wrote the book moments matter. Cause I think what I've realized through this whole experience is all these moments in our life are there for a reason and a purpose. Even though you don't think they're serving you, they're there for a reason. And I, and right. I, in my talks, I shared different moments in my life that came back around that day on the Hudson river. So I think that's what really came back, looking back, but then you look forward, right? If I could change something, right, what would I change? And looking back at a younger day, these are two things that I would change. And it was like, it hit me across the head, Alan. First thing was have patience, have patience, right? I was very impatient as a child. But the yeah. second thing I, I really realized, I realized this probably after I got married and had our first child. And this, I think it was like a slap in my face not literally, but figuratively, it's not about you. It's not about you. And I think once I realize everything in this world doesn't revolve around me, it's not about me, then all of a sudden I can add value to other people and I can open up and I can be vulnerable to other people. I think those are two things. I mean, I remember the day, it was right after our child was born, you know, I was, I was so focused on business. And I realized that moment I had a daughter, right? It's not about me anymore, right? Right. So good. Would that tie right into what advice you would give your younger self? If you could go back in time, would that be the two things or would there be something different that you want to tell your younger self besides have patience and that it's not all about you? There's one more thing that I've realized shortly after Miracle on the Hudson that I think it cost me a lot of relationships and probably some money likewise is even though I didn't think I was, I was judgmental. 
I judged things and people very quickly. And there's a circumstance that happened after the uh, Miracle on the Hudson and in the green room of Good Morning America that woke me up. And I realized I had no business judging people until I understood their backstory. And that was the moment I realized if I could change that one thing, if I could look back through my life and I could change that one thing and just be less judgmental, how could that change my life? And I think that's the one thing that's opened up everything for me in my life since the Miracle on the Hudson because I don't judge anybody anymore unless I know their backstory. I do what Martin Luther King says, judge people by the content of their character, right? And then once you do that, then you can have some judgments. But you know what? That one thing has opened up so many relationships for me that I probably would have never had. Because I would look at it and say, why would I want to talk to this person, right? Or how can this person help me? Instead of looking at the bigger picture saying, it's not about me, right? So good. Yeah, they tie together, right? It's not about me and not being quick to judge others. And we may never know, really, truly, the shoes they're walking in. That's right. Something God has taught me over the years and still teaching me because it's easy. It's easy for me just to quickly want to think I can figure somebody else out, you know, when probably I'm misjudging. So um, I love that you shared that. What advice would you give to someone else, Dave, who maybe is listening to this episode and, you know, they're in the midst of their whatever challenge they may be going through, you know, may not be in, in a sinking plane in the middle of a 36 degree 40 foot deep river, but it probably feels like that to them at this moment in time. Just in general, what, what kind of advice would you give to them? One of the beliefs I do hold is everybody in their life will have a personal plane crash moment. You know, it could be a cancer, it could be a car wreck, it could be, you know, whatever it could be. Everybody's going to have that one of those moments. So how do you handle it? How do you bounce back? There's like three things I share with people that I did and I would recommend. Number one, you got to change your state of mind and how do you do that through your physiology, right? Through what the questions you ask yourself and what you focus on. And that's what I did. The first thing that I did, even going down a plane, I had to manage my mind if, you know, through this. And I did that by asking myself different questions. Second thing, and probably the most powerful thing is this, you got to change the meaning you attach to it because the meaning you attach to something produces the emotion in it. And the emotion is everything you have in your life. Your life is nothing but emotions. So second, change the meaning. And you reframe meaning by asking a different question and different approach. But the third thing is I just wrote about this last week in my blog because I was talking to somebody and I said this. I'm like, wow, that's pretty much what I did. And I think this could help. And one of the things that I learned when I was young, and my mom told me this, and I thought back, and short story is when we moved to Virginia, I was very good at punt, pass, kick, and sports. I went in and won the contest. <laughs> and I had all these boys against me, right? Immediately, all these kids hated my guts. And my mom said something to me, which I remember when I told this young person this, this too shall pass. And I remember that because, yeah, everything in life that's passing, COVID, we're in the middle of COVID, right? It's a challenge. Everybody's on edge, but it passed. Yeah. This too shall pass. So nothing is permanent, but death. That's, that's, how, that's the advice I would give. That's great advice. By the way, I, I loved pump, pass, and kick. I, I grew up, Dave, in a church. <laughs> it's going to sound really weird to everybody, but it's my story. I grew up in a church that disallowed several things, one being sports, organized sports, I should say. So I couldn't play little league and basketball and football and all the other things, you know, flag football or whatever, all the things other fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh graders were doing. But the one thing I could do is like PE at school and pump, passing, kick. It was great. Not to mention I could kick and throw fairly decently. So I just loved pump, passing, kick. I won it every year in Ohio. And yeah, I won it every year I was in it, right? And got to the second, third round. But uh, yeah, that was quite a moment when I won that thing. 
And all these boys immediately hated me because I was a new kid in town, right? And I took the trophy. Yeah. But I love that advice, going back to what you said for our listeners and all of us, because it's just a matter of time that before we're in the next challenge is changing our state of mind. I think of that Romans 12 passage about renewing our mind and and the self-talk, as you talked about, you know, what we say when we talk to ourselves and we're all talking to ourselves. So what are we saying? Constantly. <laughs> yep. Yep. And that this too shall pass. What a simple, simple thing. But it's such a profound concept to just know this is nothing's permanent, as you said, except death. Boy, good stuff. So just some like 30 second quick questions as we you know, begin to start winding this down. Do you have like a favorite success quote that you'd like to share maybe for entrepreneurs or, or anyone for that matter? Yeah, this is the one that I learned probably about 20 years ago. And I live by it. And I, I try to teach when I tell entrepreneurs, you know, the main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. That is right. one of my favorite quotes because it's like so many people veer off, right? I mean, I'm, I'm guilty. I do it at times, but as long as I keep the main thing the main thing, then I'm focused. And I learned that when I spoke at NASA. And that guy told me something that made trigger that. I'm like, it was brilliant, right? It was brilliant. That day opened my eyes, not only to what happens at NASA, but these kinds of little distinctions, right? That can go between life and death. Astronauts are life and death. Things can happen very quickly, which we know by Columbia and Challenger and some of the other things, right? Right. Absolutely. Keep the main thing the main thing. That's good. So good. Is there a particular habit that you would say has played a, a role in your success? I think the one habit, if I look back, at, I would say it comes down to one thing, discipline. You know, when I get focused in on something, I make the mission. It's like I go back to the swimming every morning at 3.50 a.m., right? I'm up, right? It's discipline. Yeah, I love it. Such good stuff. What is one of the best pieces of advice, if there is one, that maybe somebody has shared with you over the years that you'd be willing to pass along to all of us? Yeah, the one that I would say is it's the who, not the how. Because one thing, you're not good at everything, right? But if you can find somebody who loves or is very good at that, Ask their help, either model them or have, bring them on so they can help you get your outcomes. That's one that's accelerated me to where I'm at today. Finding my who's for my how. And like I said earlier, people ask me, what do I spend my time on? I spend at least two hours a day out and I'm looking for who's for my house. And I just found one today, right? And all of a sudden, we're on a fast track. Right. So important. I mean... For far too many years, I thought, you know, I had that limiting mindset that was just like, hey, if I'm going to do it, it, you know, right, I need to do it. And, and nobody's going to do it like I would want it done. And it's just we're so limited when we have that perspective, because then we're limited to our one mind and two hands and 24 hours in a day. So I, I love that. So good. And, and the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of people out there that can do a lot of things a whole lot better than I can. <laughs> I can't do a website. So listen, you know what? I tried. I'm no good at it, right? Such great advice. Is there a book that you may be willing to recommend for the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway audience? One of the things that uh, I learned when I was with Tony, the one thing he looks for with people around him, the one skill set is a skill set of anticipation. Anticipation and resourcefulness are the two skills that you will always yeah. have around him. So the book he gave me to read, and I've read it, and I recommend to people, it's called The Fourth Turning. And the reason why is because it really helps you understand how everything's seasonal. And every aspect of your life seasonal. You go through a winter, spring, summer, and fall. And you're in different seasons. But everything happens over and over. So if you go back 
you can look back at the net, what's going to happen. And this is everything is happening now in the United States was happening back in the 20s, four generations ago, right? We had opulence, depression. Now we're on brink of what's going on potentially internationally. So I recommend people, if you want to learn how to anticipate, see what's going forward, you got to understand history, read the fourth turning. It gives you some perspective on how to understand and anticipate more effectively. I'm not familiar with that book, Dave. It's the fourth turning. Fourth turning. Fourth turning. You mentioned two great words there. You said, I think Tony looks for in talent, really. Anticipation. Anticipation. And what was the second one? Resourcefulness. Yes. Resourcefulness. Yeah. Those are the two keys. And that's what I look for in people. And that's where I try to keep my mindset on. If I try to look to the next step, you know, I don't have all the money in the world and you don't have all the money in the world either. No. But it's about the, how do we handle the resources we do have, right? 100%. 100%. As you just said, you know, nobody has unlimited resources, but, you know, I've shared with people many times that they're like, oh, I lack the resources to do this or the resources to do that. Hey, no problem. That means you need to be more resourceful, right? Find a way where there's a will, there's a way, get it done. And that's a key attribute or quality in a person. So I, I love that. What is Dave Sanderson's definition of success? Have you thought about that? Like I wrote this down in 1989. So yeah. It's the ability to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it. And that's where I look at success. So, you know what? If I have the ability to do all that, I'm successful. And I can do that every day. Yeah. I can do that every day. And so that's that's my definition of my personal success. What, when, and who. What you want, when you want, and with who you want. Yep. Love it. What excites you about the future right now, Dave, when you're thinking about the future? What is one or more things? Maybe it's something you're working on, or maybe it's just something in general that just excites you about the future. Well, we got a lot of things going on, which I don't have a time to really explain. I go to my website at DaveSandersonSpeaks.com. But, you know, what it really excites me is this. I've made a goal to live to 139, 139 years old. So I'm not even halfway through my life yet. I'm acting like, you know, I'm not even halfway through my life. People say, no one's ever lived to 139. But you know what? If I have the mindset that I, I will live that long, that I have all the energy and everything I need, I'm not even halfway there yet. It's a mindset. It's a mindset. So I'm actually treating my body out. I mean, I'm taking all the, I'm taking all these supplements for the cells and I'm doing all these things, right? To try to line myself up to give myself the best opportunity to live the 139. So that's what excites me right now. You know what? I personally love that. And you've got me beat. I might have to, uh, you're challenging me, Dave. You're challenging me because I'm, I'm planning my life for 120. And I was just sharing this on a podcast a couple of days ago that I was on, but that may sound big to some people, but it sounds really small compared to 139. So I, I like I that. Somebody's 156. And I'm like, okay, you got me. But he, he has a, he had a similar mentality. I was like, you know what? People say, why 139? Yeah. This is why it's 139. Because I want to see the next millennial. I won't be here for you know, the next okay. one, like 2100, right? Yeah. That's 139 years for me. You know? Gotcha. That way I can see two of them and I can see my kids when they're uh, when they're old aged, right? Yeah. I love it. Well, that's great. Well, and some people might think I just could imagine there's people that hear you say 139 and me say 120 and thinking, you know, hey, we're just living for this life and it's all about getting as much as we can out of this life. And and I would just say, if anyone's listening to that, this is my perspective. And Dave, you add on anything you want to add on from your perspective. But I feel like so many people have a limiting belief on most aspects of life. And now we're talking about life in general. And I'm like, 
Here's the bottom line. I want to be a good steward of the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the opportunity, my time here on earth that God gives me, whatever it is. And I understand today may be my last day at 51 years old. I understand that. And I'm fully okay with it. I'm perfectly okay with it. But what I'm not okay with is planning my health, as you were mentioning, and my finances and my this and my relationships and all these things, these key parts of life to die at 80 if and when God allows me to live to 90 or 139. So I'm planning for this longer life and I'm perfectly okay with it being shorter than that, if that makes sense. No, God will take us when he wants to take us. But if I have the mindset, right, I'm going to live that way. Right. It comes down to the mindset. I tell people, it's like, you know, I guess I'm not even halfway through my life yet. Right. I work with an organization in Dallas called Halftime. And they talk about that, that halftime of your life when everything starts changing. Well, I'm not even there yet. And I love that you brought that up because I didn't mention that. But for me, that's another big one. It's all mindset. Because if I think I'm 51 going to 75, well, there's not much time left to accomplish much. And, you know, you, you could easily not maximize your life. And so it's like, yeah, it's exciting when I know that I'm not halfway through my life, potentially, to know that there's so much more that can be accomplished. Hopefully it's things that are going to last eternally, but there's things that can be accomplished. Let's get to work. Let's have some fun. Let's not give up on life too soon. Let's get our legacy set up, right? Let's leave what yeah. we're going to leave behind because that's what it's all. God wants us to leave, leave our legacy behind. 100%. 100%. I love that. Hey, what is uh, the best way for our listeners connect with you, Dave, and follow along on your continued, all the amazing things that I know you have a book, another book coming out in January, but just all, all the stuff or contact you or whatever. How, what's the best way? I would appreciate that. So yeah, if they go to LinkedIn at Dave Sanders on LinkedIn, I leave my weekly blog and that's the best way to connect with me short term, but go to my website, davesandersonspeaks.com. That's where we put all, we're putting all the information. It's always under construction, like everybody's website. Please do that. And uh, as you know, I respond to everybody. I respond to everybody. Until we figure out what needs to happen, we'll be uh, we're doing that. So thank you very much for having that opportunity. Love it. I appreciate that. And we'll put davesandersonspeaks.com a link down in the show notes for the listeners. So you can check that down there. If they go there, if they go to the uh, Books of Magazine section, if they can get a free copy of my magazine, Dave Moments okay. Matter magazine. This last one's tremendous, and I, I'm really happy for the people that contributed. So my gift to your audience, go down and get a free copy. And you can subscribe to it. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything except uh, putting your name and the email address in. Perfect. Wonderful. And that's on your DaveSandersonSpeaks.com website, right? Magazine? Yeah. Magazine, Perfect. Yeah. Hey, Dave, I'm going to give you the last word. Any closing comment that you may want to share with our listeners today? Well, thank you. I, I just think that, you know, right now, if you don't control your mind, somebody else is going to control it for you. One of the best pieces of advice I've ever received is you got to invest in yourself first. I implore people. And this is what I've done since 1987. Every year I make a personal development budget. And I, I put a number of dollars to set aside because you know, even at my age of 62, I'm still going to seminars. I'm still doing things. And so I just one of the things I, can, I would suggest to everybody, put together whether it's 400 $500, do something every day, read, do something every day to improve yourself because it'll, it'll go out exponentially. It'll get, you'll get tenfold return on your investment. So good. Great advice. Keep learning, keep improving, keep growing, invest in yourself. I love that. What a great word to go out on, Dave. This has been awesome. I know you're a busy guy. Appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway podcast and sharing a little of your story and just a little of your wisdom and expertise with our listeners. Thank you, Alan, for having me. God bless. Thank you. 
If you love this podcast, grab some of Alan's free resources on his website at alanblain.com, spelled A-L-L-A-N-B-L-A-I-N.com. You can also find links to Alan's Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok there in his contact page. Lastly, if you can leave a five-star review for us on your favorite podcast app, that will get these messages out to more people and it will really mean the world to us. Thanks in advance and make it a great day.